Unreached people group. I don't know if anyone else caught that last week. So you're gonna stay seated. Uh, who knows what I'll do? All right. That is easy, easy, isn't it? So so we'll get doubles today. How's that? Is that fair to make up? So we'll get doubles, and it is interesting that Bill texted me, and I the group that I forgot last week that I had was the Chechens. Uh, yeah, so I actually had that as my group. So a uh, picture of a, and this one's a very poor color. Printer was running out of color, <laughs> as you can tell. But they actually call themselves Nochi. They don't call themselves Chechens. I did not know that. There are about one and a half uh, million of them. And if you actually get out a map and look at a picture of the Black Sea, I don't know if you've ever done this, you're not far from the Mediterranean. You go north from the Mediterranean and you find the Black Sea. And then you go to the right of the Black Sea and you find the Caspian Sea. Have you ever done that on a map? They're kind of like this, a little Black Sea, land, Caspian Sea. And right between those two seas is an area that's called the Caucasus Mountains or the Caucasus Regions. That's where the Chechens have always lived in that particular region. That's where Bill lived for much of his life, one and a half million of these particular people. They constitute, constitute the largest native ethnic group originating in the North Caucasus region. They call themselves the Nochi. Their society is structured around Tukuns, which are unions of clans, and they are strongly Muslim, each clan led by a specific spiritual mystic. Some adhere to a unique Sufi tradition called Muridism, a type of Islam. They are strongly resistant to the good news about Jesus, Pray a strong movement of the love of Christ will bring these families and communities into a rich experience, amen, of the Lord's blessings. Pray that their hearts would be softened and that they would hunger to know Jesus and want to follow his ways. Pray for peace for them, a people that have been so often persecuted by the Russians, about one and a half million, amen. C-H-E-C-H-E, uh, not -E -E. <laughs> easy. C-H-E-C-H-E-N, Chechen, C-H-E-C-H-E-N. And so another group will pray for one of the largest groups in the world that has not been reached with the gospel. And I just found very interesting uh, a pocket of them uh, that have been since World War II uh, in Germany. And there are over 60 million of these people. Uh, 61 plus million, probably more than that, and it's the Turks, T-U-R-K. And there's a large group of Turks in Germany, one and a half million. It's interesting to read what happened with them, so I'm going to just read it to you. The majority of Turks live in their home country, but significant numbers live elsewhere. They began to arrive in Germany as guest workers after World War II with the understanding that they would be able to return to Turkey. Things did not work out as planned. Eighty years later, their grandchildren are still in Germany. Uh, they live in one of the world's most prosperous countries, almost all Sunni Muslims, but they feel alienated and isolated and do not like the German culture. These people tend to clam up within their own culture. A 2016 article describes Turks in Germany as people going through intense identity crisis. There are a very few Turkish followers of Christ in other places of the world, and some of these Turkish believers have become full-time ministers of the gospel. Pray that they would go to Germany 
to minister to these people. There has never been an account of even a single Turk person in Germany ever coming to Christ. Pray for a Book of Acts movement to the, of the Turks in Germany, for Holy Spirit anointed believers from the Turkish community to change their society from within that would empower Turkish disciples to make more disciples. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, verse 15. It probably says here, if I would look, because they have a section on the language. So it says here Turkish, that that is the language they use. But I expect they picked up, obviously, for generations. So maybe somebody will pray for the Chechens and or the Turks and ask for the glory of Jesus. When we do think of other people who've been persecuted, the Chech, Chechnya people, the Chechens who've lived in that mountainous region, Russia has treated them cruelly and horrifically for uh, many more years than we can count. These people have refused to bow uh, to the Russian communist government that have lo loved their own independence. They've wanted nothing but their own lifestyle. Many living in isolated mountainous regions that simply wanted to, to live out their village life. Uh, and Lord, we... Uh, just ask and seek and knock uh, for your grace, for your love, for your peace, the Prince of Peace, uh, for the miracle of your gospel, just for the created, beautiful, indescribable ways that you could bring uh, your eternal life and your eternal love into these people's lives. Yeah. We pray that for Bill as a specific individual, but for yes. uh, all these regions, we want to see you work the wonders of your love as we sing that at Christmas, the wonders of his love. Yeah. We pray for those wonders. Uh, to be manifested in beautiful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. So, we'll just talk a little bit about some good things, though. We all need the gospel, don't we? Um, I do love to hear the gospel repeatedly. I keep going back to Matthew one twenty one, that verse that we love. They, yeah, Joseph, uh, isn't Joseph just a, a great man, just the more you think about him? You're engaged, can you imagine? You're engaged to... Uh, this wonderful young lady, and you're preparing to get married, and then you find out that she's pregnant, and you know that it's not your child, 
And so you assume that it's somebody else's child. That's a logical conclusion. Uh, I don't know how typical people react. I would probably be hurt, uh, angry, enraged. I don't know how to fill in the blank. You know, just the shock that would come into my heart in a situation like that. But don't you love the way the scripture describes him as a, quote, righteous man? Uh, certainly righteous, not of his own, but this is a man who had been touched by the deep love of Jesus, even though he didn't understand it fully. And he cared about her deeply. And he wanted to do everything he could, even at that point, to protect her. And he is spoken to by an angel in a dream, a visitation, and tells him not to be afraid, and then gives him specific instruction about the naming, correct? You shall call his name what? Jesus. And then he says, why? He says, that word Yahweh saves, Joshua from the Old Testament. You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what an amazing sentence to be saved from my sins by Jesus. What does that mean? And so if you think about it, uh, we've seen many times, and we started talking about this a couple weeks ago, but you hear this question many times in Scripture, probably one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask. What must I do to what? Be saved. Isn't that a great question? To really just ask that. You know, when that question really begins to get in your heart, nobody's making you ask it. Nobody's telling you to ask it. You're finding your heart is saying, what must I do to be saved? And isn't it interesting that if we look in Scripture, there's always different answers, but there are always three main ones. Have you ever noticed that? So wherever that question is brought up in Scripture, there are three different answers. I want us to look at three. So if you have a Bible, you could turn to Acts chapter 2 where that question was asked. So Acts chapter 2, and the setting is Pentecost, remember? And Peter has preached his first sermon. There are thousands of people present. And verse 37, this is an amazing phrase, verse 37, Acts 2, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Isn't that great? So the word is having a supernatural effect. This is the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. It is piercing into the deepest part of people's souls. They're pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? Or, or what must I do to be saved? And then Peter answers, uh, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children too, and for anyone as far off as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And then with many other words, he earnestly testified and kept exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So when Peter answers it, he has one main word. What's the main word he uses? Repentance. So he uses repentance, that phrase. He says, repent. So how do I be saved? What must I do to be saved? Repent. But we get a completely different response in the same book, right? About 13 chapters later. So you turn about 13 chapters later to Acts chapter 16. You're on the second missionary journey. They're in the city of Philippi. There is a cruel Roman jailer. And he has seen the miracle power of God. He is actually contemplating committing suicide. Um, but the story doesn't end that way. God has different plans. Uh, verse 29 of chapter 16. 
It says, He called for lights and rushed in, trembling. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, and what's the question? What must I do to be saved? And he gets a different answer. They said, Believe, or the word faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with everyone who was in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and he was rejoicing greatly, having what? Believed in God with his whole house. Is the word repentance anywhere? Nowhere to be found. So not repents, but he's told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What must you do to be saved? Believe. And you remember John 3. There is a uh, somewhat perhaps arrogant Pharisee named Nicodemus. You know, and he wants to talk to Jesus, which is a good thing, right? And he wants to talk to Jesus, and so he goes to Jesus when? Nighttime, <laughs> under cover of darkness, and has a spectacular encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you must repent? No. Do you tell him to believe? No. What do you tell him? You must be born. So John 3, verse 7. So what must I do to be saved? Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so it's easy to get confused because we hear this key question and it comes from different places and often the answers are very different. And let me tell you, I cannot tell you how important it is to understand clearly in your mind by a work of the Holy Spirit, what these three are and how they fit together. What is repentance? What is faith? What is spiritual birth? How do they go together? Because there can't be a more important question than a human being to say, what must I do to be saved? Because I'll tell you what, every human being at death is going to step into eternity. Boy, what a step. Do you ever think about that very often? You know, on the day you die, you step into forever, and that destination will never be changed. I tell you what, it can't be a more important question. What must I do to be saved? Because I'm going to step into forever. And they asked this question because the Holy Spirit was beginning to work on them. In essence, they're asking, how do I plug in? Now, Jesus himself would answer a difference. We looked at the one in Mark 1.15. Remember, he put two of these together, you remember? Uh, the kingdom has come. <laughs> the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And then what does Jesus say? Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus takes repentance and faith, and he actually puts the two together in Mark 1.15. Well, what I want to start with before I go and draw pictures on the board again is I cannot emphasize enough how important, um, from a logical standpoint, um, the order, can I just say that again, the order is of utmost importance. Oh, I just cannot overstate that. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about this all the time. The order is of utmost importance when you're thinking of repentance, faith, and spiritual birth. So, so important. I gave you the illustration a couple weeks ago that if I had pancreatic cancer, if I had pancreatic cancer, they often call it a silent killer because you often have it, but what? Don't know you have it. And so what do you do? Nothing. And what happens to you? You die. You have a disease a dangerous disease, a devastating disease, a destructive disease. Now, if I knew I had the disease 
And I knew how serious it was, and I knew how deadly it was, and I knew how dangerous it was. And I knew there was a doctor in Raleigh who not only had the power to make me well, but wanted to heal me. What would I do? I'd run to him. But the point is, I will never go to him unless I first know what? About my disease. I have to know about my sickness. I have to know about it. And let me tell you, when the Holy Spirit begins to show you your sin, to show you how dirty you are, to show you how enslaved you are, to show you how sick you are, so that you're beginning to learn about your sin sickness, your sin defilement, your sin slavery, not just intellectually, but what? In the deepest part of your souls, this reality is beginning to become a foundation in your soul. And aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? You then know there really is a doctor who really can and wants to make me well. But you will never go to the physician unless you know about the what? The sickness. And I'm not talking about a superficial knowing and a few little verses knowing and someone talking about knowing. I'm talking about a supernatural, deep in your soul, learning and understanding about the reality of your sin in the deep places. So let me give you a second illustration, which is just as important. I want you to think of repentance as the foundation in your soul upon which the house of faith is built. Repentance is the foundation laid in your soul upon which the house of faith in Jesus is built. Or to say it another way, why this order is so important, if your repentance isn't real, your faith is fake. If your repentance isn't real, your faith is fake. We've tried to get people to believe in Jesus who don't even know they're a what? A sinner. You need Holy Spirit wisdom to know how to counsel people. You shouldn't be rushing people into some five-second prayer about faith in Jesus. God has to lay a what? Foundation. He has to build a foundation of repentance of sin that is laid in the deepest parts of their soul and is a thorough, true foundation. And upon that foundation, then faith in Jesus can be built. If your repentance isn't real, your faith is what? Fake. It's actually fake. I mean, how serious can it be when you read things like Matthew 7? I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount. I can't get out of it. I start at chapter 5, I get to chapter 7, I go back to chapter 5, read chapter 7. I've been in the Sermon on the Mount four months. I just can't get out of it. And certain phrases in that passage, like in chapter 7, just grip my soul. When Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is small, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to what? Death. And how many go that way? Many. And the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and what? Few of those who find it. How powerful is that? And then you get to the end of Matthew 7. Uh, and, and, and talk about another many that just shocks me when Jesus says, many will say to me on the final day, Lord, Lord, and I will declare to them, I have never known you. Which means not only is the broad way traveled by lots of people and the real way by few people, but there are many, many people on the broad way who think they're on the narrow road. That, that's worst of all. They're on the wrong road and they don't know it. And on the final day, Jesus will say, you don't know me. Many will say to me, you are my Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, no. They never learn these truths carefully. These truths carefully. 
If your repentance isn't real, your faith is fake. It's a serious matter. It's a serious matter. That's what Spurgeon used to talk about all the time. He got, we've never laid the foundation. We're trying to build a house of faith in people's lives, and there's no foundation. There's no foundation. Boy, that's dangerous not to have the real foundation laid. So we're going to use stick again. <laughs> I'm going to draw them up here. Isn't it great? At least we have a board. Isn't that great? We have a board. So... And the head, heart, feet is not, well, maybe we'll use our markers. We brought our markers, didn't we, Angela? Yes. Ta-da. Okay. That's what, when you hear Newton talk about it, I mean, we, we sing Amazing Grace all the time, don't we? It's grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the first time that I believed. But there was a process where he was learning about his sin and that reality prior to the embracing of Jesus. So the two always go together. Now, I've done this where you, I hope you can see kind of and the reason I do that head, heart, feet, I'll say it again because I'm going to use a different word because it's a better word. Uh, the three words I would use are discernment, desire, and doing. Head, discernment, discernment. And the reason I use the word discernment is it's not just an intellectual understanding. It's a supernatural Holy Spirit instruction of your mind. So you end up with discernment, right? And then when it gets to the heart, there's unbelievable supernatural desires. That's the greatest thing about really being saved by Jesus. He is literally reordering the deepest passions of your soul. Aren't you glad? You know, that I've got this Lord working in my heart and the deepest desires and passions, things that really excite me. And it's not just desire, it's what? Doing. So it involves what we call a head, heart, feet. And we've already talked about the two. We've been using him. And that's why on this side, uh, whenever you hear the word repentance, you heard me in the past say, you should always think of the word what? Yeah, don't even think of the word repentance if you're not thinking of the word capital S-I-N, right? So repentance is always about sin. Whereas on this side, the, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? You have to what? Believe, and that's faith, but you should never think of faith without who? Jesus. The object of your faith in some ways is more important than the verb. I heard that was actually David Horner who used the illustration one time, and he talked about a guy uh, who was absolutely believed with all his heart that this ice is going to hold me up when the ice was about uh, two inches thick. And he goes, I believe, I know it, I trust it, this ice really is going to hold me up, and he steps on the ice, and what happens? He goes through yeah, it ain't going to hold him up. And another person where the ice is 10 feet thick, and he's I'm scared to death to step on this. I just don't know what to do. And finally, he gets up enough courage after about an hour, and he steps on it, and wow, what? Holds him up, because what's important is the object of your faith, right? Some people think that it's about what you believe. Well, belief, belief is nothing apart from what? What you're believing in. 
So whenever you talk about faith, it's faith in Jesus. Whenever you talk about repentance, it's repentance from sin. But if your repentance isn't real, your what? Faith is fake. Your faith is fake. And then at the bottom, I haven't even mentioned it yet, but we've briefly talked about it. Spirit birth. So somehow we have to figure out how these three go together. Because I must be born again to be a Christian, right? I must believe, right, or I'm not going to heaven, and I must repent. Now, the order's unbelievably important. And what we started with last time, I'm actually filling all of these to start with because they're so important, is you have to learn your sin. That's the discernment. We're going to talk more about it. But it's not enough if it's in your head, is it? The longest 18 inches in the world. <laughs> and I will put the word lament and loathe your sin. Lamenting and loathing, or to put it in easy words, you're mad and sad. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, it's not just the fact you've learned about the reality of your sin, it has gripped your heart. Do you see the difference? And that's not going to do you any good unless it gets down into your feet and you leave your sin. You see? The word repent actually means what? To turn around. So it's actually a turn. It literally is a turning and a walking in an opposite direction. It's an actual step. It is an action. It's an action. So there's a learning, a lamenting, a loathing, and a leaving. Now on this side, it's the same. You can't have faith in Jesus. Always. Now I believe in the Holy Spirit doing supernatural things. I do believe in that. But let me tell you what. If I had a daughter who went to the mall, you know, and she meets some guy for the first time, and she comes home that evening, and she says, guess what, Dad? I'm getting married. And I go, what? I met this awesome guy at the mall. How long have you known him? Well, we spent two and a half hours together, and we're getting married on the weekend. And I'd say, you can't marry him. I'm in love with him, Dad. And I'd say, no, it's impossible for you to what? Know him. You don't know him. There's no way you could know him. Yeah, and yet we sometimes think we can have a 20-minute sermon and a person knows Jesus. Usually, not always, most people it takes time to get to know Jesus. And it's the same thing over here. It starts with learning Jesus. You have to learn Jesus. That takes time for most people. Now, I do believe in the Holy Spirit doing things like that. Believe me, I believe that. I believe there are Damascus Road experiences. You think of even somebody like Paul. He had years and years and years of reading Scripture, studying Scripture, learning Scripture. It takes time to learn Jesus. Who is this man? Who is, who is he? What does he claim? How do I know him? How can I know him? And believe me, it takes time. It's not enough if it's in your head. It has to get in your what? Heart, where you love Jesus. Where you love Jesus. And we'll talk about more what these things mean later, but where you really, really love Him. And it's not enough for it to be in your heart. It has to get in your what? Feet. And you have to lean on Jesus with a true trust and a real commitment. Faith and repentance are amazing things the more you learn about them. Repentance is always all about our sin. Faith is always all about Jesus. They involve your head, your heart, and your feet. They involve discernment, desire, and doing. The order is important, you know. 
Conversion's like a two-sided coin, head and tails, you know, repentance and faith. And you'll, you begin, as you learn these things, you can see how they're going to go together, right? And so we realize that this is a big, big picture, okay? And I will try to keep track of my time. We have a little bit more time. So the starting place is for God to begin to teach you. You said it perfectly when you were talking about Laretia. And I don't know, I don't know Laretia. Only God knows Laretia. But I'll never forget a lady uh, who sat in my study in Newberry. And we were talking about the gospel. And she looks at me. And as we begin to talk about sin, you know the first word out of her mouth to me? She says, I'm so thankful for the honesty. But, Pastor Brian, I'm just not that bad. That's just so honest, wasn't it? But, Pastor Brian, I'm just not that bad. She had never learned her what? Sin. You know, I did bring it. We didn't have time to show it. We didn't have a bunch of kids, but, you know, this is my, what was I going to have during my children's message. <laughs> How heavy is this thing? Someone gave me this as a gift, you know. The only thing I would want, a new calculus book. <laughs> you know, 1,200, 1,300 pages of derivatives and integrals. And for those of us, I think Mark actually likes this stuff too, right, Mark? <laughs> we don't tell too many people, but we enjoy it. We like the problems of it. I know you'd love it. I know that girl would do it in a heartbeat. She's smart as a tack. But, but I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, calculus is not the hardest subject in the world. Yeah. Learning sin, and sin is a million times harder to learn than calculus and a million times more important to learn. And so what has to happen is this discernment. God begins to do a miraculous, supernatural, discerning work in your head and your heart and feet, and you begin to really, really learn about the dark side, about the dark side, what's in you. Seriously. And it's dark, isn't it? It is so, so dark. You have to learn about the pollution. That's one of the things you have to learn is about the pollution and another thing you have to learn, and it takes time, is about the penalty. Okay? Okay. We talked about the pollution, and we know many verses. Jeremiah 17, 9. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? That's such a powerful verse, isn't it? The heart is more what? Did you know your heart's a liar? Do you? Your heart's a liar. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it's desperately wicked. Who, the next phrase in Jeremiah 17, who can understand this? Yeah. I call it the sleeping volcano. You know, that volcano may be sleeping, but it's real, and boom, it can erupt. I call it the 4-H heart, the horrible, hateful, helpless, hidden heart. You've got a hidden, horrible, hateful, helpless heart. If God showed you the evil in your heart and what you are capable of doing, you would pass out instantaneously. You would pass out. I mean, somebody's sweet as Madeline. Isn't it just amazing to look at somebody's sweet as Madeline? I'm serious. She's one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met. But to know that that lady could murder. But she knows it. She's become a believer. She knows about the evil Madeline. She knows about it. She's seen it. She's tasted it. She's felt it. She's experienced it. She's had a taste of the dark side of what's inside her, which she's capable of doing. Jesus told us that 
Well, you hit the scripture I had. See, God had us to teach. That's exactly the verse I was going to go to. Go to Matthew 5. So if you go to Matthew 5, where we have the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and I'm not going to read the first part, but in the second part of the sermon, Jesus kind of changes his focus. Do you notice that? And what is his focus? Do you remember? The second part of the sermon after the Beatitudes. He said, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. And so he starts talking about what? He starts talking about the law. Now, isn't that interesting? Because the Pharisees love what? Pharisees love the law. Why do they love the law? Exactly. Did you hear what Marcy said? That's the exact phrase of mine. Checklist. They love the list. They love the list, the do's and the don'ts. Here's the list of what I do. Here's the list of what I don't. I'm being really good at doing the do's, and I'm being really good at don'ting the don'ts. And so they can go to number one. So Jesus starts with what? Murder. Why do you think he starts with murder? They like that one. It's on the list. Do not what? Murder. And then I put Pastor Brian. Check. He hadn't murdered anybody. You know, so now I've got my list. You know, when you go through all these things Jesus is talking about, I love the way he starts. He starts with anger and ends with what? Do you remember the last one he ends with at the end of this long list? Law. He ends with law. What a great ending. Jesus isn't interested in your list, is he? What's he interested in? Your heart. And so what does he do? Like I told you, the children's sermon. I gave this children's sermon. I had a bunch of children that time when I was speaking. And how many of you kids have ever committed murder? No hands went up. No. Check. Do not kill. How many of you have ever been angry? There was one kid. Can you believe it? Wasn't this great? There was one kid that didn't raise his hand. He said he'd never been angry. <laughs> what does Scripture also say? All men are what? Liars. <laughs> All men are liars. But no one can say, when I say which one of you have not been angry, none of us can raise our hand. Jesus is dealing with the what? Heart. And so let me tell you this. If you want to deny it or try all you can, if you've ever been angry, ever, it means there is evil murder in your heart. That's just a small taste of the shocking evil that's within us all. The shocking evil that is within us all. One of the things I found as a believer is I grow closer to the Lord. It's like that illustration I gave you at nighttime of having a light come into the windshield of my soul. And all of a sudden, what I thought was clean, I realized was dirty. As I grow closer to the Lord, He shows me more. Two things He shows me, which really excites me, and I'm glad He holds the two together. <laughs> he shows me what I am without Christ. And that just, I can hardly bear it. I can hardly bear it. And isn't it amazing he does more of that? God has allowed me as I grow in loving him to show me so much evil in my heart that at times I'm just absolutely, I can't speak. I, I can't comprehend what is in me, what I'm capable of doing. But that is not me. I am so thankful. That is not my identity. Christ is my identity. So he not only shows me what I am without him, he shows me what I am with him. And he's cleaning me from my sin, healing me from my sin, freeing me from my sin, and changing me and filling me with his glory. And I do have victory in Jesus. I feel it, I taste it, I know it, I celebrate it. So I don't let sin define what I am. You know, that's one of the problems that people in Reformed theology have focused so much on. They focus so much on sin, sometimes you wonder if there is a cross. 
<laughs> you know, there's a cross. There's victory. There's redemption. There's healing. You know, that's why they would mock uh, Wesley and his perfectionism. You know, don't mock Wesley. Wesley was a person like an Andrew Murray who had gotten so close to God and grown so much in God that he really was so sanctified. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect, but he had moved up the mountain so far. There's so much of the glory of God in him. And you'd be amazed what God can do to you. So aren't you glad sin's not the end of the story? But you have to learn about this sin. Heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately wicked. And anger, like you said, Madeline, no one can get away from the anger question. That's why Jesus started with the anger question. There's no way to escape that. I've only met that one kid. I lost my... Thank you. See how helpful he is? See, he's watching me. He's going, he's going, he's never going to know that thing. <laughs> so we really have to learn that. And you have to learn about that pollution. Let the God show you the shock and evil that's within us all. You know, sin really does make me dirty and defiled. It makes me sick and it enslaves me. Aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? The blood of Jesus will clean me. The blood of Jesus. I, these are the L's I love talking about. Uh, the, the light of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the liberty of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. Jesus will shine his light into my dark places. Give me life, give me liberty, and give me love. He'll take my dirty sin and he'll clean me. He'll take what's bound me and enslaved me, set me free. Liberty. He's got me liberty. He's going to clean me. He's going to clean me, free me, heal me. He will heal me from my sicknesses and he'll change me so that I can be what he wants me to be. But you have to what? Learn it, don't you? See that? And I cannot tell you how important this foundation is. It takes time for God to show you the dark side. And if he really shows you, what are you going to want? <laughs> You're going to want to be set free. You're going to say, I am a slave. Set me free. I am dirty. Clean me up. I am sick. Heal me, Jesus. And you'll believe with all your heart that the only person in the world that can clean you, free you, and heal you, and change you is Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection. My perfect creator had a perfect birth, lived for me a perfect life, was crucified for me, rose for me, reigns for me, prays for me, has a gospel for me, and he can come into this dirty heart and clean it, this sick heart and heal it, this enslaved heart and free it. He can change me and make me new, and I believe it's true. Amen? And so I'm so glad it doesn't end with the repentance side. It goes with the faith side. Now, we'll stop there because the next topic is so important. I don't want to um, go into it without us having time, okay? But you do realize that this foundation has to be laid. So I just want to encourage you as you pray. That's why it's a great thing to pray, Jesus, teach me about my sin. I want the foundation of real repentance to be laid in the deep parts of my soul so that when you build faith in you on top of it and the storms come, it will stand because there is a firm foundation. There's so many people that will fall away because they have never, ever had real repentance laid in their heart. But Pastor Brian, I'm not that bad. 
I won't tell you her name, <laughs> sweet lady. And she was so sweet. She's almost sweet as Madeline. <laughs> Not quite, but almost. <laughs> Angela knows who it is. <laughs> another city, another place, another time. But she wasn't learning, was she? Yeah. She wasn't learning about her sin. So we will stop there. I'll encourage you to read Psalm 51. That's what we do. We'll close just reading that psalm. That's such a great place to finish, isn't it? Psalm 51. It is a great psalm on real repentance. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your mercy, that cross love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Clean me from my sin. Isn't that a great thing just to cry to God? Just to cry out, clean me, Jesus, clean me. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He had learned, amen, against you, you only. I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. You are just when you speak, blameless when you judge me. Behold, I was even brought forth in iniquity. You know, isn't that an amazing thing to think? I mean, just to think about that. A baby in the mother's womb, maybe five months pregnant, hasn't even been delivered, hasn't said a breath. That child's heart is already defiled. Isn't that a stunning thought? That, that, that child's heart. That child isn't going to be born into the world and then poisoned by the world. That child is bringing poison into the world. Isn't that stunning? But they're so cute. Let me tell you this, and it's a fact. Hitler was a cute baby. He was. He was a cute baby. I've never met a baby that's not cute. He was a cute baby. All right? So, and sin, my mother conceived me. You know, we have sin before we're even born. Yeah. You don't have to learn it. It comes real natural. And sin, my mother conceived me. But you desire truth in the where? Innermost being. And in the hidden part of my heart, you will make me know wisdom. Believe it. I do. I believe God's doing that in my heart. Purify me. Hallelujah. And I will be clean. Wash me. Isn't it great to just have faith? Wash me, Jesus. Wash me. I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a what? Clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit inside me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach other transgressors. Word means rebels. Your ways and sinners will be converted, restored to you. Deliver me from guilt. I need deliverance, O oh God, God of my salvation. My tongue will joyfully sing about your righteousness, Christ's righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth can declare your praise, for you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. What are God's sacrifices? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing for anyone who knows they're a sinner. <laughs> They don't say, I'm not that bad. <laughs> Think of the difference. Here is that person, I'm not that bad. Here's the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah. You know, the amazing thing is, as God shows you your sin, you really believe you're chief. Yeah? You know that? 
I don't have to point at Joel. I'm Chief Joel. <laughs> Joel's fighting me. No, Pastor Brian, I'm Chief. No, Joel, I'm Chief. Joel goes, no, Pastor Brian, I'm the Chief Sinner. No, Joel. <laughs> the point is, when God shows you that, you think that you're the worst of the worst. You don't have to point anybody else. You go, I'm the worst. But that's not the end of the story. That's the great thing, isn't it? That's the wonderful thing about conviction of sin. You'll know the difference between conviction of sin and condemnation of sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts your sin, it always comes with the hope of the gospel, that Jesus will clean your sin, heal your sin, free your sin, and change you. When Satan condemns you, he doesn't want you to know any good news. All he wants you is to put you down and tell you that nothing's, you're useless and God will never change you and out with you. That's Satan's condemnation, not the Holy Spirit's conviction. Amen. So God will never turn back a repentant heart that asks to be changed. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for these truths of your word. Uh, calculus uh, may be hard, but sin is a much more difficult subject to learn deeply. Discernment, desire, and doing. How we pray for Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit to instruct each one of us in this room about our pollution, that we would learn crystally clearly about the reality of who we are outside Christ and who we are in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.